You are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. Luke chapter 9, verse 7. Let's stand one more time as we look. Luke chapter 9, verse number 7. I told you last week that one out of every three people is good looking. Well, we just did another survey. And one out of every two people is really smart. So it could be you. Luke, that was a horrible joke. Luke chapter 9, verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was happening. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some uh, that, uh, by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, I, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and great provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. And he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we, go, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for they were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each and They did so and had them all sit down, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them, and then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces, because Baptists don't let things go to waste. And now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, let's say it together, the Christ of God. You may be seated. Here's the question we want to ask. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus? See, you'll never be a follower of Jesus in faith and lifestyle, and you'll never help others do the same unless you know who Jesus is. In our culture today, in our American culture, we have people who have different views of who Jesus is. A few years ago, Kevin DeYoung, who is a blogger, a pastor, and a writer, uh, wrote a, a blog piece about the different Jesuses of American culture. It's a lengthy read, but I think it's very apropos. He said that there's a Republican Jesus who's against tax increases, activist judges, is for family values and owning firearms. There's a Democrat Jesus who is against Wall Street and Walmart and for reducing our carbon footprint and spending other people's money. There's a therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's the open-minded Jesus who loves uh, everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There's touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christian athletes and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's the gentle Jesus, who was meek and mild with high cheekbones, flowing hair, walks around barefoot, wearing a sash, and looks German. 
There's the hippie Jesus who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagine a world without religion, and helps us remember that all we need is love. There's a yuppie Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. There's a spirituality Jesus who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrines. He wants us to find a God within and listen to ambiguously spiritual music. There's platitude Jesus, which is good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons. He inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts us up so that we can walk on mountains. There's revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and dream up impossible utopian schemes. There's boyfriend Jesus who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in the secret place. There's a good example, Jesus, who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. All of those are the different American culture's version of Jesus, but they're not the biblical Jesus. Because the biblical Jesus is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He is not the reflection of the current move or the projection of our own desires. He is King of kings, Lord of lords. He is God's Son, Savior of the world, substitute for our sins. He is more loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than any of us have ever thought possible. He is Jesus. And because of that, we go, and we go in His name, and of this series called Go has three convictions that we as believers are called to go, and we can go in these three convictions. Number one, God wants to use me. Number two, God has empowered me. And number three, God is with me. And so Jesus here in Luke chapter 9 is training His disciples, and He's just sent them out on their first short-term mission trip, and they've gone without Him. He sent them out two by two, and He gave them power and authority to share the gospel and to do miraculous things. And so in chapters 9 and 10, we see that Jesus is teaching his disciples how to make disciples. But yet, as we read chapters 9, verses 7 through 20, there is seemingly a theme here that Luke is developing within this whole teaching of how Jesus made disciples. And this theme that he's developing centers around the question that's asked multiple times, and that is this, who is Jesus? And so in these little parochopies, in these little vignettes here that he gives us and starting in seven and going through 20, he shows us the way that people answered. And there's three different ways that people answer the question, who is Jesus? One is confusion, another one is consumption, and the third one is confession. And so this morning, the message is this, you will never be a follower of Jesus in faith and lifestyle and help others do the same if you have never confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So let's look at here these three answers to the question, who is Jesus? First, we see the first answer given by the cowardly king, and that was confusion. In verse number seven, we're reintroduced to Herod, but this isn't Herod the Great. This is his son, Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas. He was going to rule over the Galilean region and the Perean region, which is down by the Dead Sea from 3 BC to 39 AD. He's a very wicked, very worldly man, and yet he was king, and so he heard what was happening, and in, the, in, the, in the, his kingdom, and he heard what was going on. Now, they didn't have social media, but it was word of mouth, and people had been talking about the acts of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the exorcisms, and the fanfare, and news had traveled fast and wide. But yet, as Herod is hearing about this guy, he's, varying, he's kind of getting varying, uh, conflicting reports about him, and so he's perplexed. He is confused. He is puzzled. The reason that he's puzzled is because he was told that maybe this Jesus was actually John the Baptist reincarnate, that he is kind of raised from the dead. And, and, and so Herod is kind of scared about that, 
perplexed about that. And the reason why is because here is the guy who actually beheaded John the Baptist, who murdered John the Baptist. And in the ancient world, they believed that people who were wronged would come back and give judgment on those who did them wrong. And so Herod here is now perplexed, thinking, well, maybe this Jesus is John the Baptist reincarnate because Jesus is sounding a lot like John, and maybe he's come back to haunt him. Others, however, proposed an alternative view, and that is that, no, Jesus isn't John the Baptist. He's one of the prophets of old. And so that makes the most logical sense since Jesus and John were cousins, only six months apart. They were contemporaries of each other. And John uh, was beheaded. And Herod said, I know that this can't be John. I killed John. But I don't know who he is. I want to know who is this guy? You see that question? Who is this person? And so in verse number nine, the Bible says that he, Herod, sought to see him. Herod wanted to see the guy that was perplexing and confusing. He had questions that were bothering him so. Now, think about this. Herod was the king, right? It's good to be king. And Herod could have summoned Jesus anytime he wanted to. But what we kind of get here as we read here is that even though Herod said he sought to know who Jesus was, he sought to find Jesus, it didn't seem like he was trying too hard. And maybe, just maybe, this is somewhat speculatory, but I think it actually fits if you really read it, is that maybe he was perfectly content with just having questions about Jesus go unanswered. Maybe he was perfectly content with remaining agnostic. You know, I shared with you last week that there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. No one is truly indifferent to him. You, you can't just say, I, I'm indifferent to him because, uh, because he is such provoking. He is polarizing. You either accept him or you reject him. You receive him or you reject him. And here, Herod is not being indifferent. He's being cowardly. And in doing so, he's rejecting Jesus. He could not deny the reality of Jesus, but he also wouldn't go any further and actually embrace Jesus. He's like a lot of people in our world, they want to know about Jesus and they know who he is, but they don't want to go any further than the knowledge that they have. They, there is Jesus, this person. And so Herod here is perfectly content with being confused about Jesus. And that may be where some of you are this morning. Maybe you just showed up here and you don't know why you're here. And maybe in your whole mind, you've just thought, well, Jesus is a good person. He's a wise prophet, someone to admire, but he's nothing more than that. And that's where a lot of people are. They want Jesus kind of like an elf on a shelf, just over there and and just don't worry with me. I won't worry with you. And the reason why is this. The reason why some people don't want any more knowledge of Jesus than they have is because when you truly know who Jesus is and you embrace him, he changes your life. See, most people know all the Jesus they want to know and fear that if they truly knew who he is, it may actually change who they are. And that may be where you are. And here's the thing you have to understand. You get no points just because you ask questions about Jesus. It's do you really want to know him? Because here's the truth. And I think Tim Keller succinctly says this. He says, if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus rose from the dead, then we must accept all that he said. So if Jesus really is who he says he is, then we must accept everything that he says that we are to do. But here's the other thing. He says that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then why should we worry about anything he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he actually is who he says he is and he rose from the dead. To truly know him and to truly experience him is to be changed by him, and that scares some people. So some people, most people, a lot of people in our world are totally content with just saying there's a Jesus, but not truly embracing him. But the second group we see here, the second 
answer to the question, who is Jesus, we see in the consuming crowd. It's consumption. So what we have here is that Luke shows us in chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, that he sent his disciples out on a short-term mission trip. Then there is this kind of this camera change, this scene change, where we're now taken to Herod the Tetrarch, who is really concerned about who Jesus is, but not that concerned. And then Luke takes us right back to pick up where the disciples were. There is a period of time. And so the disciples, the apostles, who went out two by two into the villages and towns, uh, they came back to Jesus. We don't know if it was a week or two weeks, but they came back from their short-term mission trip of preaching the gospel and performing miracles, and, and they came back excited. And they came back and said, hey, Jesus, we did this. I mean, we raised that person up, and that person who was blind was able to see, and that person that had leprosy, they're, they're now clean. And, and, you know, we went to this one town that we thought would hate us, and they actually embraced us. And we went to this one town that we thought would, would love us, and they hated us. And Jesus, we did what you said. We shook that old nasty dust off our feet. We did it, but we're exhausted. And so Jesus takes his disciples away. They go to the Ritz-Carlton in the desert to a desolate place. They went to the wilderness. God often speaks in the wilderness. They went for rest, reflection, and relaxation. But yet, verse 11 tells us that, that as they were going out and as they were out there, just maybe sitting by the pool there, the people found out where Jesus was. They found out where the disciples were, and so they swarmed him. Now, scholars will tell us that when you look at the miracle of the loaves and the feeding of the 5,000, it was more than 5,000 people, that there was maybe as many as fifteen to 20,000 people there. Jesus, in this moment, is at the very height of his popularity. Jesus is the one who is healing people, raising people from the dead, exercising demons, and doing amazing things, and telling a lot of things that these people never heard. So people from everywhere came to Jesus, came to his disciples. I mean, could you imagine? This was, this was circus day Jesus. They came all over because they had needs. There were people that were lame. There were people that were blind. There were people that were, had kids that were demon-possessed, and some of you can relate to that. There were some that had this issue and that issue. There was people just coming and clamoring, and then there were just people just following a crowd. You had people that needed, and you had just a crowd following the crowd. They all came to see, what could we get from Jesus? And Jesus sees this herd of people coming. I mean, imagine that scene in The Lion King where the hyenas started to come after Simba. There it seemed like was going on here. In this moment, they were just coming, hundreds and thousands of people. And Jesus and his disciples were on vacation. They were having a, a dude's retreat. They, they were having a discipleship retreat. And what does Jesus do? Does he send them away? No, the Bible says here that he welcomed them. I'm sure Peter and John and James and the others are like, come on, Jesus. But he doesn't send them away. He loves the crowd. He has compassion on the crowd. And so he teaches and heals the people all day long. And then verse number 12 comes, and, and the Bible tells us that the day was getting late and the people were getting hungry. They were going on. Jesus hadn't stopped. And the disciples probably were hungry too. And, and there was nothing to eat in that moment because they were in the middle of nowhere. They were on the backside of Chuliota. And so the disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, we've been here all day. We're, star we're starving. You've got to be hungry. These people are hungry. They're now getting hangry. Send them out. Send them to the Golden Corral. Send them to Cracker Barrel. I'm sure already that probably Judas had already called the Cracker Barrel. Do you, are you guys full? Can, do you take in reservations right now? And Jesus said, no, we got other plans. I've got another agenda. 
I've got plans for the crowd, but I've also got plans for you. See, Jesus in this moment wanted to teach his disciples another lesson on dependence and trusting him. See, up into this moment, as they had just been with Jesus and just been on their short-term mission trip, Jesus says, I want you to go out with nothing and I will provide everything for you. And so they went out with nothing and God provided everything and they came back and they probably said, Jesus, it's amazing how we were provided for. But now Jesus wants to take that to another level. Not only will, I, will Jesus provide my needs, but Jesus will provide others' needs through me. And so Jesus looks at them. They're saying to Jesus, Jesus, we've got to send them out. We don't have, there's nothing here. we got nothing. And Jesus says, no, you give them something to eat. And they're looking around like, we don't have the money. We don't have the time. And, and so they come to Jesus and say, well, all we found is five loaves and two fish. Basically, we found a kid snackable. Some little boy gave us his snackable that his mama brought with him, and that's all we got, but what is that for all these people? And what you notice here in this story is that Jesus gave them a problem that only he could solve. You know, do you like it when people come to you with problems and they have no solutions? Don't you just love that? I don't. And if you do, God bless you. Maybe you're wired in a certain way. Maybe you're, you're personality profile is you really like that stuff, but I don't really like that stuff. But what you see here is that Jesus gave them a problem where he was the only solution to the problem. Could it may be that God is doing something in your life right now or this week that he's presented a problem, a challenge in your life, and he's doing so that, so that you will see that he's the only solution to that challenge? Maybe you've spent all week trying to figure it out on your own, trying to scheme and try to use your own ingenuity to figure out the problem that you've been placed in your life. But all of the long, it was just Jesus saying, you need to learn to trust me with it. So Jesus here in this moment takes over. He takes over and he has his disciples assist him. Remember the mall, the M-A-W-L, model, assist, watch, and launch here. He's going to model and have them assist him in the miracle. So he says, you get the people in groups of 50. And you get them all around in different areas, and so it's all set up and organized. And then Jesus takes the Lunchable. He takes the cracker, because that's really what it was. Don't get this illusion that it was like a big baguette. No, it was a little bitty, probably not so good barley bread type thing. And little fish, don't get the idea that it was a big tilapia. This little kid didn't have a tilapia, two tilapia in his backpack. He had two sardines. The breakfast of champions. Crackers and sardines. And so Jesus then begins to pray. He says the Hebrew, Baruch Adarai, Adachinu, Adachinu. You know, he goes on. And blessed the Lord, O God, who makes the bread. And then begins to pass it out. Jesus begins to break it up. He's John and James and, and, and Andrew and Judas and, and Bartholomew and Thomas. I know you're doubting I can do this, but here's Thomas. You get some. And, here, and he just keeps going. And just, Jesus just keeps breaking it off. Here, you, give me a break. Give me a break. Break me off a piece of that Kit Kat bar. And they just keep going. And then the next thing you know, he gets the sardines. And here's you some sardines and some sardines. I mean, it looked like Swedish fish just coming out just here, there, and the ever. And all of a sudden, all these people got fed. And what Jesus taught them is that he, he taught them this. He can take very little and multiply it and make it everything you need. And Jesus teaches his disciples that not only can he supply, but he can satisfy. See, Israel went out in the wilderness, and God provided for them manna, bread from heaven. But Jesus is going to take this and say, look, no, no, no. I'm the bread from heaven. Because here's the thing. Miracles of Jesus were not just miracles that were done. Jesus didn't just go around and say, bippity-boppity-boo. 
Jesus did miracles to be a bridge to point people to the truth of who he is. See, Jesus is not God, and he's not good solely based on what he does or doesn't do. He is God and good because of who he is. So he says, I'm the bread of heaven. If you hunger, come to me. So what did the crowd think of Jesus? Well, if you read the other Gospels, which the interesting thing, the miracle of the 5,000 here was found in all four of the Gospels, the three synoptics in the Gospel of John. And what we learn here is that the crowd was captivated by Jesus. I mean, it was dinner impossible, and Jesus provided it. But they didn't really know who he was. They had ideas, but they didn't know. As a matter of fact, in John's gospel, John chapter 6, verse 14, notice what the Bible says, that when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who's come into the world. And so verse 15, Jesus said, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. See, Jesus knew that there was something wrong with them. They had consuming faith. Consuming faith isn't always saving faith and often is not at all. They wanted to see more. They were excited about the signs. They believed that he was a miracle worker. They were enthusiastic, but they were enthusiastic with the wrong Jesus. They wanted Burger King. See, people have a lot of excitement about Jesus but it's the Jesus of their own imagination. Not the real biblical self-denying Jesus. Jesus will go and answer them in John chapter 6, verse 26. He'll have a conversation with them and he'll say this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, not because you saw the signs. See, signs were meant to point you to something. When you see a sign, it points you to something. So if you go to Disney and you go drive and you see that big sign that says Disney World, that's not Disney World. That's a sign that points you to where? To Disney World. So you're not seeking me because you saw the signs. You're seeking me because your bellies were full. You ate the food and it filled you up. Verse 27. Do not work, Jesus says, for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God has set his seal. Don't just live for the temporary. Live and look for the eternal. That's consumer Christianity. What can God do for me now? How can he fix my problems now? I don't know so much care about who he is. I just want him to fix my problems. And Jesus knew that the same crowds who were only in it with him for what they could get from him would be the same crowds that would abandon him once things got tough. Isn't that true? So here's a question. There were thousands of people there that day. I mean, if the ushers and the deacons were counting the church attendance that day, it would have been a record. I mean, could you imagine just having thousands upon thousands of people showing up? It, the excitement, there's the disciples like, yeah, man, we, even though we're supposed to be on vacation, we're going to take off because thousands of people showed up for church today. Here's a real question. How many of those people were really followers of Jesus? You know, we put so much emphasis on the crowd but should it not be an emphasis on who really is a disciple? See, we live in a day of cultural Christianity, which is getting smaller and smaller, but also consumer Christianity, which is that group is getting smaller and smaller. But here's what I mean by that, is that people want a Jesus who will fix all their problems, be their best friend, provide what they need, perform miracles on demand, inspire them to be a better person, help them to be happy, and never feel left alone. And then they, they also want to be a part of a church with state-of-the-art buildings and technology with gifted, good-looking, and encouraging pastors. 
exciting and fun programs that will wow their kids, fill their lives. They want warm and friendly people that ask very little of them and do everything for them. They want projects that make them feel like they're making a difference in the community around them. And they want music that fits their personal preferences and uplifts their, uplifts their weary, worn-out souls. Those things aren't bad. Those things aren't wrong. But here's the question. Do you just want something from Jesus or do you want Jesus? Did you come here this morning for what you could get out of this morning or did you come from this morning for Jesus? Because if you came here for what you can get out of here, you may not be very happy when you leave. But if you came here for Jesus, he's here. See, we're living in a new world. What happened with COVID is going to be something that if Jesus doesn't return, your children and your grandchildren are going to be talking about. That this was the moment the world changed. See, you remember 9-11? 9-11 changed the world, didn't it not? World War II changed the world. The Great Depression changed the world. Well, COVID-19 is another game changer, another world changer, and it's not an interruption of things, of your normal programming. It's a disruption. And the world and the church are going to be different from here on out. I don't know if you're aware of this, but for the past 10 years in America, the average regular church attendance has been on a decline for years, a 10-year decline. If you now add upon new surveys that are done, 32% of people who used to attend don't even attend in person or online anymore. They do not attend. They're not involved and that's going to continue to go down. As the world continues to get more and more, more and more hostile towards Christianity, there's going to be very little room left for cultural Christianity and consumer Christianity. It's going to get to the point, and listen to me now and hear me later, you are either going to be all in or not. And so in a post-COVID world, being a follower of Jesus and being a part of a church cannot be about the place. It can be about the building. It can't be about the preacher, the personality. It can't be about the programs. It can't even be about the people that are nice to you. It can't be about your own preferences. Not that those things are bad, but those things change. Buildings fall apart. Pastors leave or die. Programs change. People die. Your preferences change. The older you get, the grumpier you can sometimes get. All those things change, but the mission doesn't. And so what has to keep you in the church should not be the lower room things. It should be the mission. And the mission is to make disciples that make disciples. And if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, it can't be based on the people around you. It has to be on Jesus. Don't get your faith from the crowd. Get your faith from the Christ, Jesus the King. So listen, now you can go for it again. I'm here all day. You see here the confused, the cowardly king. He was confused. You see the consuming crowd. They were consumers. But I want you to see the confessing Christian. There's a confession. Verse 18, there, there's some changes here. We don't see it because the way Luke presents it. But if you read the other gospels, you'll see that there's some other things that are happening in between here that we didn't have a chance to go through but you're going to see that later on, Jesus is going to take his disciples away. They're going to go to Caesarea Philippi up in the north part. It's the very foothills of, uh, of Mount Hermon. It's, it's right by the spring, the Benea Springs, one of the most beautiful places in Israel. I love going there every time I go. 
And there Jesus spent some time with them in quiet. But along the way, or somewhere up there, Jesus asked this question. It's very interesting that he asked this question. I want you to get in your mind, as you read the Bible, look for themes. This one is low-hanging fruit because this question has been asked now three times. Or now, this is the second time, there's going to be a third time coming. Who do the crowds say that I am? What did Herod say? Who is this guy? What is Jesus asking them? Well, what what do people say about me? Jesus says, listen, you were with all those people. You, you were there in Bethsaida, and you were there in the desert when we went, and, and, and I did all the miracles there, and, and you saw when I fed them, and you saw when I healed them. Well, what did the people say that I was? Who were the people? What, what did the polls say? What did Rasmussen say about it this week? What, what, what did Politico? What, what, are the, what are the polls? Well, you know, the political poll says that you are John the Baptist. And the Rasmussen poll says, no, you're Elijah. And then this other poll, this Trafalgar poll or whatever, well, you're one of the prophets of old. Now, why did Jesus ask that question? It's not that he didn't know who he was, and he didn't really care who they thought he was. He already knew the answer. He wanted them to think for themselves and to make up their own minds who they say he is. Here's what you have to understand. You can't get your faith or your, your relationship with Jesus by crowds or popular opinion. Consumer faith is not the same as confessing faith. So he then looks at, at the crowd, he look, not the crowd, he looks at the disciples and he asks them, each and every one of them, he asks them this question, but who do you say that I am? That you there is an emphatic. Who do you and you alone say? Not who do you and your mama say, not who you and your daddy, not who and who, you and your wife, who do you say that I am? And here this question in this moment was unavoidable and non-transferable. Jesus wanted them to say it so that they would know it. And so Peter, God love him, he is a man of many words. The only time he ever closes his mouth is to change feet. Said, you are the Christ of God. We read that and we're like, well, that wasn't really much. That was a huge statement. You're the Messiah King. You're the one we've been waiting for, the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the the messianic law. You're Yahweh in the flesh. You're the one to establish God's rule and reign, the one to heal the sick and give sight to the blind and freedom to prisoners and proclaim the good news to the poor, the Lamb of God that's come to take away the sins of the world. When he says the Christ of God, he was saying a mouthful. And so Jesus in Matthew's gospel tells us what Jesus said after that. Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, he says, listen, Peter, you didn't get that from anywhere else but God. You're not that smart. The only way, Peter, you would ever know this is God the Father through the Holy Spirit, through his word, tells you who I am. And listen, the same is true with you. You and I will never know who Jesus is except for God revealing him to us. We will either be confused about him or consumers, or we'll be confused consumers until God by his spirit tells us who he is, the Christ, the son of the living God. And there he is. I mean, Peter's like, that a boy, good job, Peter. And I'm sure all the others, I was like, man, I wish I had said that. Stinking Peter. Jesus said, looks at Peter and says, well, upon this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of hell should not prevail. And he's not talking to Peter. I'm going to build the church on you. No, he's going to build the church on this confession. But then Peter's all like, I'm sure he's all puffy chest here. And then Jesus says, but here's the deal, Pickles. He didn't say that. I added that. I am the Messiah King. You are right, but I'm not what you think I am. 
Because I'm the Messiah King who's got to die on a cross, but I'm going to rise from the dead. And, and what is, I mean, Peter goes from a hero to a zero because he's going to look at Jesus and says, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're not going to do that. And what, is, what does Jesus say to him? I mean, Jesus just got done saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, good job. And then now he's going to look at Peter and say, get behind me, Satan. Wow. But yet he's confessed. He knows what the consumers didn't know, and he knows what the confused, cowardly king didn't know. And what you learn is this. Please stay with me. Don't go to sleep and don't leave. You may know who Jesus is, but it will take you the rest of your life and eternity to know him more. Think about that. See, in Peter's mind, the Christ of God wins and rules and reigns, and he does. And when Jesus says, no, but I've got to die first, then Peter says, no, that's not my Messiah. That's not my Jesus. He doesn't do that. My Jesus storms Jerusalem and takes over. And what Peter has to learn is that Jesus is not the Messiah of his own imagination. He's greater than his imagination. Jesus is not God's Messiah who came to defeat evil and injustice by storming Jerusalem and ascending to the throne. Jesus is God's Messiah who willingly went to Jerusalem to die on a cross and raise from the dead. That's who Jesus is. So who is Jesus to you? How you answer that question will ultimately define your life and your eternity. Now, for the younger people in the room, you may have no idea who I'm about to talk about, but for the older ones, you will. But this week, at the age of 87, Larry King passed away. Larry King was arguably probably the greatest interviewer of our time. His show, especially during the 80s and 90s, the Larry King Live show on CNN, was one of the most watched shows in television history. The second highest rated television show outside of the Super Bowl was Larry King interviewing Ross Perot and Al Gore. Now, some of you, some of you middle schoolers are like, who are they? Read a history book. Matter of fact, Al Gore invented the internet. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. <laughs> but Larry King, who was an agnostic Jew, was asked, if you could interview anyone, who would it be? And Larry King answered, Jesus Christ. And the interviewer said, well, why would you interview him? What, what question would you ask him? And here's what King said. King said, I would ask him this question. Again, Larry King is one of the master interviewers. He said, I was just one question. I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. Because the answer to that question would define history for me. Now, someone asked him later, were you really serious about that question? Do you really want to interview Jesus? And here's what he said. He said, yes, I really meant that question. I really do. I want to ask him. Why would Larry King want to know that? Because if Larry King truly knew who Jesus was, it would change his life forever. He wanted to know, but he didn't want to know that much. I'll tell you this right now. To truly know Jesus will change your life forever. Jesus said this, and this is going to sound like a hard saying, but it's a true saying. In John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus said this, unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. There was an eight-year-old boy in Bradley's Pleasure Baptist Church in Kane Store, Kentucky. It's a country church. The preacher preached that text. 
unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. And that day, in that moment, I got up from my pew before the sound of any song, went to the altar, and I gave my life to Jesus. And it wasn't that I had come up to that on my own. It's that the Holy Spirit in that moment pointed it out to me. See, you may be here and you may be confused. And you may be a consumer. Just here for what you can get. But today, I hope that you all leave here a confessor. That Jesus is my Savior and my Lord. What did I say earlier? You'll never be a follower of Jesus in faith and lifestyle and help others do the same if you have not confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Thank God Maurice did this week. Amen, Maurice? Amen. What about you? What about you? Would you bow your heads with me? Those of you watching online, you can bow your heads with me as well. Father, I ask right now that your Holy Spirit would do a work I can't do. What the Holy Spirit said to Peter in Caesarea Philippi, I pray right now at Central Church in Sanford, Florida, on January 31st, 2021, that that Holy Spirit that moved Peter would move the people today, that they would know who Jesus is. God, we want to know you more. It'll take the rest of our lives in eternity, and we'll still never comprehend you because you're inexhaustible. You're God. But Lord, I pray for someone in this room whose heart's broken, whose lives in shambles, that God, today would be that day of their salvation. And maybe they would pray a prayer like this, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I've done a lot of wrong. I've tried to fix my own mistakes. But today I came to that place where I realized that I have a problem that only you can solve. And so today I give you my life forgive me of my sins. I believe you are who you say you are. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net.